On this episode of AvTalk, we join the Airbus Summit in Toulouse to see the status of sustainable aviation, including sustainable aviation fuel, hydrogen, and electric propulsion. But first, we have to get there. Hello and welcome to episode 130 of AvTalk, a very special episode. I am Ian Pechnik, here for the first time in person with... Gabriel Lee. Jason is off this week. We've left him in somewhere in the United States. We're not really sure where. He's finding his way home from Los Angeles. Or maybe he's already made it. We're, we're not quite sure. But Gabe and I are in... Toulouse, France. We are here at the Airbus Summit. But before we get to talking about all that, let's talk about how we got here because I'm super excited to say that for the first time in 597 days, not that I was counting, but for the first time in 597 days, I took an airplane flight. And so that was last weekend at this point. Uh, We're recording on the 22nd, Wednesday. And last Friday was my first flight in nearly 600 days. And man, oh man, it was a flight. Yeah. It was one of those things where it was a, a, a proper introduction back into the, to the friendly skies for sure. So I was flying from Chicago to Los Angeles on a United 757-300, which as any good Av geek knows, is lovingly referred to as the pencil jet because it's 964 miles long. Once you get to the back, as soon as it's pulled away from the gate, you can actually walk to the gate in Los Angeles from Chicago. And I was seated in the third to last row of the entire plane. And I get on board, I get situated, I'm sitting in uh, the, the window seat on the left side of the plane and boarding continues and it's the hubbub and I'm, I'm feeling good because it's my first time on an airplane in a while. And a, a young woman, a young mother with, uh, with an 18-month-old kid sits down in the aisle seat. Mm-hmm. And kids very cute, interacting. You know, I wave hi, and and she waves hi back, and and she's very excited to be on a plane and, and things like that. And we've got an empty middle so far. I'm like, okay, this will be fun. And then the dreaded announcement of uh, a very full flight, right? Which, which I always assume means they're about to stuff people in the overhead bins. So so it's a very full flight. So I'm like, okay, the middle's going to fill up, and and a, a young twenty mid twenties. I feel like I'm an old man. A young kid in his twenties, a young guy in his early twenties comes in and sits in in our middle seat. And at this point, you're thinking to yourself, if anything's going to happen, it's going to be you know like the worst thing that could happen is that the kid starts crying. Right. And, and then cries for the three and a half hours that it takes us to get from Los Angeles to or from Chicago to Los Angeles. And as a parent of three small children, that's not the end of the world. Right. That's something that at this point in my life, I can tune out with some headphone noise canceling headphones go on and it's an airplane. It's loud. Whatever. Yeah. The kid's not backing me. So it can't kick my seat. Fine. No big deal. Well, you'd be wrong because first things first. Captain comes on, welcomes everybody on board, says it's very nice to have you on board in United. We are ready to go, but the old but the jet bridge won't retract from the aircraft. Wow. Maintenance is coming out. They're gonna take a look at it. That's a new one. 
So this actually happened to Jason coming into Chicago the last time he came in a few months ago to, to see me, but it was the reverse. The jet bridge couldn't get to the aircraft, right? which I, I suppose in the grand scheme of things is actually a better problem to have because they can always push you off the gate, go find a different gate and, and you can get off the aircraft. But if the jet bridge is stuck to your aircraft, you're not going anywhere. That's right. So, 15, 20 minutes, I see the the maintenance truck out there. The guy's got his toolbox open. He's, you know, running back and forth, grabbing different wrenches. He's got a cable at one point. And eventually, he puts all the tools in the toolbox. The, the toolbox closes. He gets in the car and drives away. About a minute and a half later, see the jet bridge start to retract a little bit. And the captain comes on. He says, okay, we're ready to go. Great. Problem solved. Mm-hmm get in line for for departure we take off to the to the west towards los angeles we're climbing through it was greater than 10,000 feet cuz they'd already done the the two chimey hey we're above 10,000 feet thing yeah. so we'll say 15,000 feet guy in the center asked the the woman who's holding an 18 month old child can can i get up can i get up and he didn't really do it in a way that like she understood what he was asking then he proceeds to bring his lunch back into his mask. Oh, wow. Masks are great at containing sickness, shall we say. <laughs> they work both ways. <laughs> so, that's the beginning of the flight. I mean, we're, we're five minutes, not even five minutes into the flight and that happens. And so, he's, you know, like handing him an air sickness bag. He's got the mask in his head. Like, it's like a, a sack at this point. It's one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. And he grabs, he gathers his stuff. Luckily, he he was in the middle seat. And, and so, luckily, what happened was the, the mask kind of kept everything contained. Most things contained and nothing really got on any, it didn't get on anybody else. It got on the seat. And, and so, the woman who, who's in the aisle, because she's traveling with, a, with an 18-month-old, she's got wipes and, oh, yeah. and lots of them. And so, she's like, will you, will you hold, hold my kid? <laughs> well, I wipe all this. So, I'm sitting there holding an 18-month-old. Like, we're looking out the window. We're having fun. It, it, it's fine. The, the kid was the best part about the whole flight because she just ended up becoming my friend. Nice. And and so, I'm sitting there with this kid on my lap. We're, we're looking out the window. Mom's wiping stuff down. The flight attendants figured out what's happening. So, she comes over. She's super apologetic. She's got like a stack of napkins. She's got the, the Clorox wipe. She's got the spray bottle. She's got all... Because they have all those like single individual, you know, wipe down your tray table hand wipes that they give yeah, out. Yeah. So, she brings like this stack of them and she's just like tossing them out. And so, we're playing like pass the baby back and forth so we can wipe things down. And this guy, he spends like a half hour in the lab. Wow. And then he comes back. So, we we switched. I gave up my window seat so the, the mom and, and kid could stay in the window seat so that... Because it's a lot easier for me to get up in case the guy needs to get up. He only had to get up one more time. Okay. And so, of course, like I'm suspiciously... I'm like, why are... I mean, in today's... like In, t- in my mind, I'm like, why are you... Like, I, and I never wanted to like come out and say that. But I was like, why... why? Why are you ill? Yeah, what exactly. is what is causing your and he, he luckily, I mean for me, I guess, and unfortunately for him, it was just the motion of the airplane and okay, so you and things him. like that. Yeah, I, he, he, I didn't ask him straight out, but he he volunteered the information. I, you know, it was like, are you okay? You know, do you need anything? And he was like, no, no, it's it's just motion sickness, and and I'll settle my stomach, and and then I'll be fine. Hmm. Yeah, and then the rest of the flight. So I spent the rest of the flight with like one eye on him. 
being like, do you, do you need to get, and anytime, and he, he started to nod off at certain points. And then, you know, you, when you fall asleep in a, in an economy seat, you get to that point where your head, you know, gets too heavy and then you, you hits your chest and you're up again. Yeah. And so every time he did that, I'm like, you need to get up. Are you okay? <laughs> do you need to get up? And so it's just like one of those things, like my first flight after 18 months, a pandemic and and all of that happened, but I will say that the crew was amazing. That's great. They they were just like, "What do you need? How can we help? Let's get everything cleaned up." They made sure that the guy was okay, that he had like the ginger ale and Sprite or Seven Up or whatever they serve that he needed, and you know, do you need some crackers or something like that? And it was. I was really impressed with how they handled everything. Like, it, like it was. Not, I mean, I'm sure they've seen far, far worse. Yeah. But even still, like, it's not something you want to deal with. So then I got to Los Angeles, and that was fun because it was actually fun. Dorkfest was, was great, and and I'll I'll go into I'll do the brief details uh, on this episode, and and Jason and I can talk a, a bit more detail about what we did. But I, I will say that it was it was amazing to see. Everyone, you know, I, I didn't know how well it was going to be attended this year mm-hmm. because 2019 was very well attended, lots of great prizes, lots of great events. And this year, the really the only uh, event that was taking place was the actual Dorkfest because all of the other event spaces where people normally go are either closed or capacity restricted or or people just didn't want to deal with, you know, going indoors in, in certain places. Right, right. And it, completely understandable. And so, I didn't know how well it was going to be attended, but then... Brett Snyder, the Cranky Flyer, was doing a raffle for Avello tickets. They or not tickets, but a, a tour of their aircraft at Burbank, huh. and he had nearly a hundred, nearly a hundred respondents for the raffle. And you had to be there because it was that day. It was like Dorkfest, and then the tour was right after, going to be right after the thing. The tour didn't end up happening, but that's a different story. But you figure a hundred, almost a hundred people. That's pretty. You know, pretty well attended, and, and there were over, well over a hundred people uh, at Dorkfest. People from a lot of places. Uh, unfortunately, not you know too many inter- international fo- folks that were already here that are right. international to begin with. But people from all over. It was really good to see people that I hadn't seen in, in well over almost two. In in some cases, two years because the last time I saw them was at, at Dorkfest 2019. And so that was a great thing to happen. I got to experience my first earthquake. Oh wow! Uh, so that okay. was fun. A, a four point one. Uh, it's like the New York City subway going underneath, and then all of a sudden you're like, "Wait, there's no subway here." Right. A nice light introduction. Yeah, I, I was. I was. You know, if you're going to have an earthquake, I, I felt like that was a that was a good one to do. And then um, then I came uh, here directly from Los Angeles. Well, not directly. Well, yes, technically, directly. Right. Uh, with one stop in, in Paris and then down to Toulouse. And, and that was a, a great trip aboard Air France. And they were very, uh, it's funny, you know, the, the you have to wear your surgical mask. Mm-hmm. Surgical mask. It has to be the surgical mask. But I'm wearing a more effective mask than a surgical. No, it has to be a surgical mask. Yeah, and don't we, try to argue about it. Uh, yeah, they they did not they did not care for that, and they they were very good on on both my flights that that I took about enforcing kind of mask wearing when not consuming food or beverage. 
And so, so that was good. Not that I was really concerned about the actual airplane. The airport stuff, I was very... I took off my surgical mask and put on an N95 just because especially in Paris, the, the queue for the flight yeah. was... There was no personal space to be had. Yeah. And um, Charles de Gaulle, it's very close quarters in general. So, yeah, it's yeah, not it was, nice in a pandemic. I've been I, through a few times. I yeah. was very kind of like holding like mask and then just like holding on very closely and hoping no one coughed it directly into my face. But I, I've taken three COVID tests in the past five days and I got PCR'd this morning and just got my results so I can go back to the US at the end of the week. That was my journey. And I'm sitting next to Gabe, whose journey was even more interesting in the week prior to being here with me in, in Toulouse. So I want you to tease that because I know we've got some great video content that's coming up in the next couple weeks for that. But I'm not extremely jealous of your trip the week prior, but yeah, I am. Yeah. I am. Yeah. It's understandable. I would be too. <laughs> <laughs> that's a trip that I've been trying to put together in some form for for years. I mean, in earnest for a few years at least and various things got in the way, including a pandemic. Now the perfect opportunity sort of presented itself where, so I went, where I went was Greenland and uh, did a bunch of flying around Greenland with Air Greenland on basically every aircraft they fly, including a bunch of helicopters. So it's, yeah, as you mentioned, I was recording video for the whole thing. The biggest problem now is figuring out how to, how to make it into, into a nice few packages, how to organize it because there's so much great stuff. Anyone who's seen pictures of Greenland will know it's just stunning, incredible country landscape and you're flying over that. It's just endless, beautiful views from an aviation perspective. It's fascinating. You're flying into old American World War II airstrips. Otherwise, you're flying into these tiny little runways, uh, even coming into the capital where it's you know, a very small town, relatively speaking, and so much going on there in terms of aviation. There are no roads between towns, settlements. So it's either boat or airplane, maybe dog sled in the winter. So yeah, it was, it was an amazing week there and uh, met a lot of great people from Air Greenland. And then I had a little break in between. I came back uh, on Friday to Europe and then uh, was home for a couple of days and then flew down here on KLM uh, via Amsterdam, which felt very normal and boring by comparison. <laughs> there, were no, there were no dog sleds or helicopters involved in that. No, there weren't. And the landscape was very normal. There were trees, you know, things like that. So, you know, I mean, boring is usually a pretty good thing in terms of flying. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just a funny switch to be in that other, it felt like being on another planet. So yeah, looking forward to putting together, putting together. Some I, of this I can't wait to see some of that. I, I, I snuck a peek at some of the stuff you've got, and I'm, I'm really excited to to see how how we can, can put it all together. Because, I mean, if it was me, I would just kind of watch the whole thing, like start to finish, and just have fun with it. But yeah, but I understand that there's a narrative to be crafted. I I get it. That's fine, I guess. Indeed. But yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to that, and and we'll have that on our YouTube channel. Uh, so, so keep an eye out for that and then we'll put a link to the show notes in the current YouTube channel because you just came out this week. As listeners know, the, the most mentioned airline on this podcast uh, is Norwegian. In fact, we, we've run statistical analysis on it and we're, we're sorry to the folks at Norwegian for, for every time we mention them. But the <laughs> video that you, you put out this week is you, you took Norwegian between, was it 
Stockholm, Copenhagen or Copenhagen? Copenhagen, Stockholm. Copenhagen, Stockholm. Yeah. So uh, a, a quick hop, but you came away feeling it was all right. Yeah. I mean, it was it, I, I, not that I had any reason to think they would be different, but they are such a different airline now from two years ago when they were a much bigger operation. And I was kind of curious if it would feel any different or if the service would be any different. And really, it's basically the same thing, which is mostly a good thing, I think. They offer low fares have a you know a dignified experience relatively speaking especially so. on such a, a short flight i mean it's right not that at, it at that point so much at that right, point at but. that point it's it's more how much did i pay for my ticket and will i get there exactly so what brings us to toulouse is the airbus summit and the the tagline for the summit is pioneering sustainable aviation or pioneering sustainable aerospace and the idea behind the summit, at least as far as I've gathered, the, the reason that the summit is happening, the reason that Airbus has invited folks like us who, who make words and pictures, folks who are in the industry, whether uh, working for an airline, are, are part of Airbus itself, working in, in various capacities, are airport development folks, uh, airport operations folks, as well as just people that, that work elsewhere in the industry, whether it's fuel or air traffic management or, or things like that, is to, to bring together as many people as possible to push for a holistic approach to, to sustainable aviation. Thus far, we're, we're on day to we've we've done a, a full day Tuesday Wednesday we're a half halfway through the day and, and taking a break to record the podcast and thus far I want more I, I felt like it's everything that's been said in the first day and a half could have been I don't want to say it could have been an email but it could have been a single panel I, I think because it's not we we haven't learned a whole lot that we didn't already know. It's been a lot of reiteration of commitments and things like that. Uh, the one thing Airbus did introduce yesterday was the City uh, City Airbus Next Gen, which is their eVTOL, their second generation eVTOL for urban air mobility. It's a eight rotor four passenger uh, electric all electric vehicle that uh, will fly over the next couple of years and and is going to be guided in its development by what Airbus says is existing uh, existing markets where they feel they can make an immediate impact. So it's not going to be uh, an air taxi service. That's not why they say they're designing it. Though I'm sure if an air taxi wanted to purchase a whole mess of them, they wouldn't say no. But what they're focusing on as part of their development is the markets that seem to already be ripe for uh, an elect uh, any VTOL, let's just say say that. So we're thinking along the lines of things like am air ambulance services, emergency services, rescue, uh, as well as areas that are under resourced as far as traditional aviation is concerned, where you can land something like an eVTOL and, and take off much more easily, uh, where you don't have either ground infrastructure or traditional avi aviation infrastructure. Uh, that's really the only 
unveiling that happened so far. Everything else has been more just uh, real iterative. The first panel was air traffic management, something that as Flight Radar 24, we're, we're very immersed in already, you know, basically calling on the industry to really buckle down and, and commit to in Europe, the single European sky initiative, as well as uh, CSAR, which is the, you know, kind of standardization of air traffic management so that you're flying aircraft on the most efficient routes and you are saving fuel that way. Uh, the number thrown about is is often up to 10%. Yesterday, I think we got a 6 to 10% figure from most folks. And so, I thought that was an interesting but not really not really new thing that we learned. And then, what was the, the second panel yesterday was the uh, working on kind of decarbonization and, and things like that. And, and where do you go with kind of sustainable aviation fuel, which has been a big topic of discussion over the past few days. But as Gabe and I have talked about, one of the big challenges is where is all of this sustainable aviation fuel coming from? We, we just came out of a panel where the head of uh, sustainability for Lufthansa was saying less than 0.01% of the SAF that they want is available. Right. So that's, I mean, and it's five times as expensive as traditional jet fuel. So, how do you conquer all of those challenges has been a big topic of discussion. But aside from the panel the, this morning that included Airbus CEO uh, Guillaume Fari and Transport and Transport and Energy's uh, Andrew Murphy and the, the third person, Thomas Raynaud from Airlines for Europe, there hasn't been much breaking news or anything like that. It's been a real kind of commitment, uh, recommitment to this is this is what we're doing. That panel this morning though, I thought, and and folks were following at home and John Ostrauer, who we've had on the show before and was was watching the live stream, commented on, on Twitter that this was the first time he's ever seen that that frank and constructive an exchange on both sides of the issue, where Andrew Murphy was basically arguing you have a, a demand reduction lever, so flying less, and you have a technological lever that allows you to continue flying at the same level or, or even you know, continue to grow by making technological leaps. And the problem is, is that the demand lever so far is winning, is his argument, uh, that, that flying less is really the only answer we've got right now. Fari countered by saying, well, no, we can still sell more aircraft because the aircraft we're selling today are so much more fuel efficient than the existing fleets. So, so basically arguing, uh, if we're talking strictly in Airbus terms, the A320neo, A321neo are so much more fuel efficient than the A319, A320, A321 CEO versions that you're effectively reducing carbon emissions by about 25% just by getting a new aircraft out. And then if we want to include, you know, Boeing's 737 MAX in there, if we want to include uh, the 787 versus uh, what whatever it, that's replacing depending on the airline, if you want to include Embraer's E2 line uh, versus the, the first generation, you can, you know, make that argument that selling additional planes certainly reduces emissions. But if you're also selling new planes and growing the number of planes in the fleet overall, yeah, 
you're not actually reducing the emissions. So to Murphy's point, I think I think he's unfortunately as as a fan of aviation, I, I think he's right. But I mean, fortunately, it sounds like everything we've heard this week, it sounds to me like Airbus is actually committed to to not necessarily solving this on their own. Uh, because that's been one of the themes this week is that they can't do it on their own. Yeah. Um, but but to to leading industry and broadening a coalition of industries plural that can actually solve the the next energy and propulsion problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think a lot of this is maybe a little dissatisfying because a lot of it is kind of abstract. A lot of it is down the road. It's important that companies like Airbus be talking about this and committing to this. And I and I do agree, it's not just empty PR, it's real. They want to do this and they realize that it's an existential question eventually for aviation to move into a more, uh, much more uh, sustainable mode. But what we hear are these kind of, you know, commitments or, or desires to produce hydrogen aircraft by 2035. And, and Okay, all that is great, but but it doesn't. It's there's little of the concrete there, right? So I think mm-hmm. that that is kind of, and also you know I think it's good to be here talking about these challenges, like how does infrastructure deliver the kind of sustainable fuels we need, whether that's SAF or hydrogen eventually. You know what kind of public policies do we need to make sure that all this happens? And like you mentioned, the fact that things got a little contentious in that in that in that discussion this morning that, that there were sort of challenges being made of each other of of leaders you know that's important too it's easy for companies to also say you know look like we want to do this by 2030 we want to be carbon neutral by 2050 does that mean very much at the moment and you know someone mentioned that even if you present it to the to I, I hate the word consumer but if you present it to the consumer like you know pay such and such percentage more to have a sustainable aviation fuel on your flight most won't take it and that's going to be mm-hmm. true I'm, I'm sure that is you know even if you say that people are getting more concerned with sustainability in aviation uh, when it comes down to it they want to pay the lowest price possible yeah, yeah and and i think one of the problems that 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 whole do you want to pay more thing is i think well no one wants to pay more i think there's a difference and i would like to to see an airline play around with this where you know there, there's a difference between do you want to pay more and it costs more to be more sustainable at this point because really the the only lever that airlines have to pull at the moment other than some of the the smaller greening things like taking single use plastics out and replacing those um, you know d- doing certain other kind of carbon offset schemes haven't really haven't really been effective. So they've got sustainable aviation fuel, which which we can talk about the sustainable part of state, sustainable aviation fuel in, in a second. But what happens when you don't present it as a choice of wanting to pay more? What happens when you say it doing this costs more? You know, and, and do we want to do better by the planet? And and here's how much it costs to, you know, here's the breakdown of those costs versus would you like to purchase some sustainable that's the farthest question from my mind. It was like, I don't want to purchase anything. I want you to figure out what's best for your thing and just let me know how much it costs. Right. And at this point, it's going to cost more, at least in the short run or, or even the medium run. Yes. The reality though is that airlines aren't going to take that step and start charging more unless they're forced to, right? Well, well, right. And, and, and that was the, the point of the panel this morning is 
how do you, I guess, force airlines to charge more? How do you force an airline to, to charge your customer more? Because airlines certainly don't want to do that. But by the same token, a lot of the airlines have recognized that sustainable aviation fuel is one of their paths forward to to whatever comes after these, we'll call them conventional aircraft at the moment. And what happens when you reach whatever is next, whether that's electric or hydrogen or we figure out, you know, uh, one of the questions today that I thought was interesting was the the question from the one of the journalists from a German magazine about using lasers to beam energy to aircraft already in flight, I like that. so that you didn't have to store any of the energy in the actual aircraft, and then you could make them light, and there would be no. He must know more than I do. Yeah, maybe he knows something we don't. But things like that. I mean, maybe there's a way to do that in in ten years yeah. or, or twenty years. But right now, it, there's it's it's scattered. It's not feasible on scale. Whether that's because of delivery or production or just willpower, it's not feasible on scale at the moment. A lot of the conversations here this week have been how to make that feasible as a bridge to whatever comes next. And it's interesting that a lot of it is about, you know, naturally Airbus wants to focus on Airbus's own innovations and what they're pursuing. And I have no doubts that Airbus, alongside many other great aerospace companies, can come up with all kinds of great technological innovations. But I think one takeaway for me from this is that without without maybe a combination, but mostly f- from from governments, public policy leading to massive investment in infrastructure, in, in new technologies, in R and D, and also whether it's incentives or or penalties to force you know the companies and the consumers alike to accept that this is going this is going to be what it costs and this is what we need to do because otherwise aviation can't stick around at some point. Right. Right. Uh, it, yeah. It's. The question that I asked about, because the, I mean, sustainable aviation fuel is on every banner of any, you know, the, we're going to power this aircraft on sustainable aviation fuel. If you ask Airbus CEO Fari about anything, one of his, his main talking points is all of the aircraft that we deliver today are certified for 50% SAF right now. Right. Great. But then you have Lufthansa sustainability chief saying, well, there's 0.01% of the, the staff we need available. And so when I asked him about that, he basically said, yeah, we're going to need governments to decide that this is what they want to do. Because without that, we, we as big as Airbus is, as big as the aviation industry is, it doesn't have regulatory power. So that that's you can't we can't force anybody to do anything but also we just don't have the funds we can do research and we can develop technologies and we can say this is what we think is the most promising but without the backing of government saying yes sustainable aviation fuels this is the way to go yes hydrogen yes electric yes moon lasers or, or something like without a governmental kind of okay or push whether yeah whether that comes in in the form of a carrot or a stick or both probably probably both it's not going to happen at scale so i think a lot of the focus this week has been on 
finding ways to to present a united front to get that to happen at scale right to convince governments uh th- this isn't obviously not the stated intention of this particular event but it seems to be the underlying it's definitely the subtext of the event convincing governments airbus so european governments that cooperation on making aviation non-carbon based is going to require a, a massive push and and an intervention at at a european level and actually that it would in the end need to be global as well because for example they you know they often raise the the point about uh, you know these taxes sort of sustainable aviation taxes mm-hmm. that we've seen in europe that airlines hate of course, for obvious reasons, and and that you know it disadvantages it disadvantages them compared to say an airline based in Turkey or wherever else or the U.S. So you know if you're going to take that route, that you need a sort of global agreement that you need that level playing field. In addition, I think you need that global agreement that we need to invest in this, we need to put real money behind this, and we need to all be behind it, right? Yeah, I, I think it was in at least two of the panels today. We're talking about a, a global level playing field. And basically, you know, taxes, this coming from an industry, you know, the airlines for Europe, you know, taxes are bad. Okay. Setting that aside, if they're unevenly applied, that is potentially and, and quite quite accurately true because you, you don't have that, that level playing field. I mean, uh, and the conversation this morning was, was certainly centered in Europe as we're, we're at Airbus, but there was also a healthy portion of the conversation centered on the US and what's happening there and, and then also China. And Fari argued that unless the US, Europe and China are basically on the same page as far as what the goals should be and what the the timelines should be for those goals, you're not going to have progress. And that seems rather unfortunate given the fact that that the US seems 98% all in on sustainable aviation fuel and, and is kind of discounted, at least Boeing has discounted hydrogen, yeah. not discounted electric, but but shuffled it off to one side. So, I think there's a lot more to come, at least this afternoon, and, and we'll fill you in on that uh, either next episode or, or check out uh, for a blog post on our blog. But I, I think one of the big takeaways here is that we all need to get on the same page and and push for whatever comes next and and at airbus that's obviously they're putting their chips on hydrogen and electric they say that hydrogen is most likely going to be the first step in regional aircraft the aircraft that they developed for 2035 uh, which they say they're they're confident in in development for launching a program in the middle of this decade and then taking 10 years to develop the actual aircraft and with with launch in, in 2035 uh, that'll be a regional aircraft whether it's a, a regional turbofan turboprop uh, or something in between who knows but it it'll start there so we'll see sustainable aviation fuel maybe or or just regular jet fuel unfortunately maybe i don't know long past 2035 yeah so that'll be i think the the x factor in all of this is what happens in the next 10 years to to prepare aviation 
as a whole for whatever comes next. The last 10 years would have been a great time to to work on this though. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but Or the last 20 years. <laughs> at least they're doing something now, sort of. At least the conversations are being had. Yeah. It, it's everything... That's the weirdest part about this week. It's these conversations are great. They're necessary. It feels like something's actually in the works this time, but it all feels and and the the head of Airbus uh, space, the the head technologist leader. Um, hmm. He he wasn't the head of Airbus space and defense, but the, the head of Airbus space was basically goes. If I'm being pessimistic, you know, there's nothing we can do. And that was that was kind of a, a, a punch in the gut. Mm. But, you know, he goes, but I'm an optimist and, and I think that, you know, doing all of this now is better than, you know, not doing it. And and certainly Andrew Murphy from, from Transport and Energy shut down one of the questions about what happens if we can't. And he goes, well, the, the science is clear that we, we can do something, so let's do whatever we can. Yeah. So, you know, it's better, better now than never. But it, it all just feels like... This conversation would have been 10, 20, 100 times more productive 10 or 20 years ago. Yes, for sure. On the fun side of all this, I loved what the uh, test pilot we were talking to uh, was saying. Do you remember his name? Yeah, Marcel. And he... Or no, Marcel. Malcolm was the test pilot. Malcolm, yes. Yeah, he, what, he was fascinating. And, you know, be, uh, test pilot's obviously very fascinating, but also because he's working on all these questions now as he was t- talking to us mm-hmm. about, you know, there's there's so much that you can sort of rethink or reimagine potentially if you're looking at new power plants, you know, an electric engine, all of a sudden it, it might change how you present the thrust levers in, in a flight yeah. deck, that it might be completely different. What's the best way to now now control the thrust if you have instant power that you didn't have before? Things like this, which must be so fascinating to be working on as he's, you know, trying out all these new things and figuring out what works. And well, I can I can say at least that I'm sure there are many more like him here, but he's certainly an asset to yeah, this company. He he was fascinating to talk to. And that was the perfect segue to close out the show. Because we will be speaking with him probably next week for, for next week's episode in depth. And we're certainly going to talk about that. He has been at Airbus for, for quite some time, has flown the A350 in test, has flown, is currently flying this week, the A321LR that is serving as the flying test bed for the A321XLR at the moment. And we'll talk to him more about, I guess, ice booties? Ice uh, ships. Ice, them, ice right? ships. Yes. yes. <laughs> what, what, it was like giant yeah, it Velcro looked, patches. It looked like big pieces of something. heavy sandpaper yeah. strapped to the leading edge of the wing and some other spots too to simulate ice buildup. So we're going to we're going to talk with him hopefully next week or or at least in in a few episodes time. So stay tuned for that. He he's a fascinating fascinating person to talk to and we can't wait to share more with you. But for now we'll we'll leave it there. We're going to get back to the next panel and and see what else we can see from from this and then today's Wednesday tomorrow Thursday we're actually going to go and visit 
the final assembly line uh, for the E350 and the airspace cabin mock-up center where customers that are about to spend hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars on aircraft go to design the interior of the aircraft that they want to see. So obviously that won't be in the podcast for this episode, but check out the blog where we'll have photos and and a write-up and uh, I'm sure we'll have some video uh, up on our YouTube channel as well regarding that. So until next episode, we'll leave it there. Episode 130 of AvTalk from Toulouse, France at Airbus. I am Ian Pechnik here with, for the first time, Gabriel Lee. Thanks for listening. 